Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. Uh, my name is Misha Oslin. I'm a fellow at Hoover and your host on the podcast. And today I am very pleased to welcome two extraordinary scholars of, of modern China who are going to be talking about some of their work translating the important works uh, that people in the West need to read about China, as well as talking about the most important thinker you have never heard of. So I'm very pleased to welcome David Ownby and Matt Johnson to the Pacific Century. David is a professor of history at the University of Montreal. And um, Matt is a principal of uh, the Alta Silva LLC, which is a uh, consulting group. Um, Matt and David, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Well, it, it's really great um, to to have you both. Oh, and I have to mention, of course, how could I forget that uh, in addition to Matt's uh, professional work, he is also a Hoover Fellow now visiting at Hoover. So we're really thrilled to have Matt join and uh, become part of our Asia and China studies community at Hoover, which is growing by leaps and bounds. And I think given the work that both of you are doing is is really going to be taking an even more um, serious and and intellectual turn, and that's that's really what I want to um, to start off by talking about. Is actually David, um, your work uh, on a website that everybody who I'm assuming everyone who studies China uh, knows about the website. If they don't, uh, they better go to it right away. And the name of the website is Reading the China Dream. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the website? What what is it? When did you start it? Um, and and we'll go from there because I think it's it's really one of the most unique resources out there on modern Chinese thought. Well, thank you. Uh, it started maybe ten years ago, when almost by chance I read a book on an airplane by Xu Jilin, and uh, it was so good that it was like I discovered a new food group. You know, that you've been eating apples and bananas and thinking that was fruit your entire life, and someone left you a mango. And I thought it was it was a what the hell is this experience? And I won't say why. I mean, I'd been reading books in Chinese for 25 years by that point, but I had never read one that was just sit down and read it good. And it was about the May 4th period. It was one of his books on intellectual history. It was a long flight, so I read a lot of it. Uh, and in addition to the sheer pleasure of discovering a new food group, I said to myself, why didn't I know about this? Because I should have. I'm the kind of person I should have known. And then I said, if I didn't know, probably no one else does either. So I started to think about that. And it took a while for the idea to germinate. We eventually got a grant, me and Tim Cheek and Josh Fogel, and started working on it. Um, the website came as part of that. Uh, I had translated stuff from Suji Lane and made a book of it and then read through sort of his footnotes and got a sense of what uh, he had been reading and talking about. And my goal sort of was to try to find who are and where are the David Frums and the Paul Krugmans and the Ross, what's his name, but can't pronounce from the New York Times. You know, just these, yeah, him. These, uh, these standard guys and girls that we read all the time that must exist in China, or that I thought they did after having read the book, but that no one knows anything about. So that's what I decided to do, just to find not the dissidents. I mean, I'm all for the dissidents. I hope they win. But it's important to know what the non-dissidents or the people who can live with the regime are saying. And it turned out there are tons of them, and they're saying tons of stuff all the time. And it's endlessly interesting. So I, I set up the website so I could do that, and I update the website every two weeks with three or four articles, if I can do it. They're always, or almost always, full texts. I think you have to have the full thing. I understand when people excerpt things out because life is complicated and no one wants to read that much. But if you want to take somebody seriously, their ideas seriously, you have to do the whole thing. And it's just become, uh, I had no idea what it would do when I started. I mean, I had a little bit of funding. And I just had a graduate student to set up a website. But then I just went from there. And how long so, does it take you to translate a piece? These are meaty pieces. These are not blog posts. No, these are not blog posts. The, the yeah. average is, I would say, 30 pages. They're very wow. long. 
Uh, it just kind of depends. On a good day, if I really like the thing and it's written in a accessible Chinese, I can do 25 pages a day. Uh, wow. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who said, if you can do, if you do something 10,000 times, you get good at it. Well, I've, I'm, I'm in there by now. I've done this 10,000 times. And there are all sorts of tricks that I won't bore your listeners with about actually how to, how to translate. I mean, one is, for instance, you know how we always will say, you're trying to translate something, you don't, the word doesn't come to you. So you put, uh, you know, beige, egg white, you know, six, six variations of that thing and say, I'll come back to it. The first thing is don't do that. Pick one, just pick one and go on. It saves you enormous amounts of time. There are lots of tricks like that. Uh, picking the guys and girls is probably the hardest part of it because there's so much out there. Even in the Xi Jinping era where they're constrained by what the party wants to do, which is discipline these people, I never have any trouble finding something interesting on my WeChat feed every time. Uh, the, the problem is, is narrowing it down to something that's interesting. And what I try to do is I'm contrarian enough not to do what everyone's doing. So I read Bill Bishop and know what he's talking about. And sometimes I take stuff from him that's representative. But if it's, I don't want to do translate another Xi Jinping thought piece because there's a whole institution out there doing that. So I try to pick just a title that looks, or a headline that looks interesting, although that's hard. Headlines are like humor. They're the last thing you can learn in language. They're just awful. But God knows what I miss. I don't want to know. And then I just do it. I just power through it. And... Um, it's actually fun. Translating is not like reading. You have to, to translate, you have to be a sympathetic reader. I mean, we're taught to be, you know, critical readers and right. interrogate the text. And that, that's all good. But when you're doing what I'm doing, you have to take their side because you have to get every sentence right. You have to know why they have to, have to say. And so I you're find saying that aesthetically, when. Uh, no, so I, what, what I wanted to ask him uh, on something you'd mentioned before, before I for, forget that. Uh, so, so there is a sort of republic of letters in China today, is what you're saying, as opposed to probably what a lot of people think, which is that there is very little opportunity and 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 no venues for uh, expression of of ideas and and many you know very thoughtful ideas. Again, not blog posts, not tweeting, but really thoughtful, meaty sort of essays of the of the type that we used to have here, and uh, in in a few venues we still do. Very well put. That is the central insight of what I've found, that that exists. Now, there are red zones where you can't go. This is not free speech. You mm -hmm. can't talk about Xinjiang. You can't talk about Tibet. You can't talk about Taiwan very much. No one talks about Hong Kong. So a lot of the things we think they should be talking about, you can't talk about. So I'm not. this is not an apology for the regime at all. What I'm looking at is what they can say in spite of all that. And you're right. A republic of, a republic of letters is a good way to put that. Uh, some people won't buy it, but it's there. So uh, one of the the um, great drawbacks, and I speak as someone who started with Soviet studies back at the end of the Cold War, um, is our relative lack of access to direct sources in in Chinese. We we don't have. Um, resources like like the two of you to be quite frank um with extraordinary chinese language skills to the number that we had those who could do um soviet studies and and could reach into um the soviet republic of letters whether they were dissidents or or they were officials um as david as you sit there at the university and i i want to um ask matt as well to, to come in on the conversation but as you sit at a major university, how do you assess our ability um, to understand China um, with what seem to be limitations linguistically and and the and the, the the base of materials that we have? The very type of thing that you're trying to address through the website. I'll be quick because Matt's been very patient. I think we're doing not very good job. Um, the sources are there, just it's out there and open. Part of the problem is that you cannot get tenure if you translate. This is just, mm -hmm. it just doesn't work. If I had done this as a 35 year old, I would be selling furniture by now. And you just, they think it's not scholarship. 
So only a full professor with nothing to lose can decide to do this, or someone else who is independently wealthy, say. So, Matt, your turn to chime in. Sorry, I've been blabbing on. No, no. We I, What I wanted to, to ask Matt about, of course, Matt um, is, as I mentioned, at Hoover, also in the business world. Uh, and I hope I I um, characterized Alta Silva correctly as as uh, you know it's a a, a professional organization that you're able to draw on your your deep knowledge. But what I really wanted to shift to I don't know if there's a great transition or or not. But on the site, and again, this is readingthechinadream.com. It's a .com, not a .org. So readingthechinadream.com. David Sight, uh, an enormous number of translated essays, but three uh, that have leapt out and I think are, are garnering attention or certainly should be garnering more attention. And those are three essays that you you collaboratively worked on. I think, David, uh, you did a lot of the translations. Matt, you did introductions and, and worked on them together by Wang Huning. Um, Matt, who is Wang? Why did you translate this? Uh, and David, David translated. Why did you guys choose this? What do we need to know about him, and what are we missing? Right. So, I want to jump off from one point, which is that I also started as an academic, and uh, you know, all of the translation skill, uh, so to speak, that I have, I owe to uh, funding. Um, you know, from our federal government, basically, and uh, to uh, the University of California, San Diego, and to my advisors. And so that's just a pitch for, um, you know, keeping those sources of funding and those kind of institutions strong in these in these areas, because they, they really are what allow us to uh, understand um, what counterparts in other countries and other societies are saying. So, Starting from there, uh, Wang is a figure who is, first of all, right now, uh, the fifth-ranking party member in China. Uh, he is China's ideologue-in-chief, which is to say that he is responsible for maintaining uh, theoretical and political consistency, basically, across uh, the party as an organization, um, and also for uh, driving ideological change. And in recent years, we've seen a lot of that change um, moving in the direction of uh, building uh, more political loyalty, uh, if if not a kind of uh, quasi-cult around the figure of Xi Jinping. And he is also important because he is a kind of window on the, I guess we could call it deep thinking that is behind a lot of the policies that are, you know, uh, I think coming out on an increasingly frequent basis with impact on anything from global markets to U.S.-China competition. And this is because uh, Wang also actually started as an intellectual, uh, one who was very close to the party, one who was also very close, uh, it seems, to the party's security apparatus. So he's, he's always thought about security, the security of the party, um, the future of the party, but he did so first as an academic. And so these, these were the works that David and I began with. And there's an interesting backstory there, uh, which the very brief version of goes roughly like this. Uh, I think that David was getting a lot of requests for more Wang Huning content for his blog. And uh, he had mentioned um, Timothy Cheek, who is a scholar who both of us know, who I would say, you know, is basically one of the foremost uh, authorities um, anywhere on Chinese intellectuals and, and modern Chinese intellectual history. And Tim uh, mentioned to David that I had also uh, been interested in Wang Huning, um, although I was coming more from a perspective of this idea of uh, cultural security. So Wang, as an interlocutor for understanding how the party thinks about uh, protecting its political system from ideological or cultural change. And so anyway, Tim put us together and um, it, the, 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 the partnership uh, took off from there. It's been fantastic working with David. I think that one of the things that's amazing about his translations is that there is a real tendency, I think, when um, reading in Chinese and particularly when reading party documents to flatten the parts that are different or the parts that we don't understand very well because they don't map easily onto our own 
system. And so I thought, you know, just as we talked through the the translations, um, as as David was doing them, and it's true. I mean, the the speed and accuracy uh, is just uh, humbling. Um, that that was really captured, I think, by those translations. When Wang talks about, uh, you know, how China needs to recreate its political culture to keep the party strong, to 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 make the country stronger economically, to sort of integrate. Uh, the, the the leadership with society lower down um, that th- those ideas are not ideas that um, I think translate easily into a lot of political debates. Wang is not a liberal, but I think that what David really captured was the ways in which Wang Huning's illiberalism is actually quite intellectually sophisticated and comes from a lot of different sources, both uh, Chinese, you know, the experience of the Cultural Revolution, Mao, et cetera, but also, as we discovered along the way, a lot of Western political science mm-hmm. also. You mentioned you mentioned Huntington in your introduction. I want to get to that in a second. Let me, yeah. let me yeah. ask you, though, we had um, uh, John Mearsheimer on, on the show uh, just, just before you guys, and uh, my discussion with him was... Um, as you would expect from someone who is a realist and and approaches international relations and and the understanding of great power competition, you know, what he calls the inevitable rivalry and the tragedy of great power relations um, from that perspective. And I pushed him on the question of ideology, and he thinks it's not important. He thinks that, you know, states will act um, in same ways to maximize power and and maximize interests and protect those interests. Um, what strikes me about your introduction, Matt, to Wang's thought is, and and there's been a little boomlet of Wang um, writing lately in in some other venues online, and a, a good piece in Palladium, um, and a piece at Law and Liberty, uh, trying to explain Wang, uh, explain Wang. But you stress the importance, uh, or seem to, of of ideology. How do you respond? to the sort of realist uh, argument that what China's doing is what any state would do. Is that correct? Or, or is there something unique about Wang and his understanding and what, and his influence on the party? And then I want to actually get to that question of his influence on the party uh, and David, bring you back in as well to talk about that and some of the translations that you were doing. Sure. Um, well, so let me take the first part then and, and, and we can open up the second, but uh I mean, obviously, you're never going to convince a committed realist of anything other than realist first principles being true, right? So I, I, I can't push back against, you know, a robust defense of realism. But I, I think what I would say is that the realism of China's socialist system is not necessarily the realism of a Western liberal democratic system. And, you know, that's one way maybe of splitting the, the, the difference. I think that one reason why intellectual history and looking carefully at ideological writing, so to speak, is important is it doesn't mean we have to take it at face value, but it's sort of through a process of careful reading and accretion and understanding how the system itself produces these documents and what it's trying to say as it's producing them, you know, to its own members, right? Uh mm-hmm. That's that's how we gradually begin to understand, for example, China's realism, you know, because there is a human dimension in there. And again, that's that's not going to convince a realist when I say that. But, you know, that that would be at least my pitch for why Wang Huning is important is he he exposes something very critical about how. China's Communist Party has evolved, you know, because his 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 writing and his uh, political career has has covered now many decades and many leaders, um, and he's somehow managed to remain in in, in favor, starting with uh, Jiang Zemin and and all the way down to the present day. So we have him as as a window on the party and how its ideology has changed. Um, we have him as somebody who tells us how that party thinks of its future, uh, what its concerns are. And there, there are other sources. Wang is not the only source here, but he's a very mm-hmm. important one for understanding, um, or at least beginning to approximate answers to some of these questions. And now here you get the politics people who would say that the party, you know, China is not um, monolithic, you know, fine. That's absolutely fine as a counterpoint, but yet it is a Leninist system. And so in a sense, it aims to be somewhat monolithic. 
And, you know, it, part of Wong's role basically is to make it ideologically monolithic, but also flexible, which was something that we really, I think, got from the translations, um, especially from his early writing on what kind of political culture China should have. He talks about democracy. You know, mm-hmm. he, he talks about, um, he, he's trying to capture information and activity and energy from the grassroots and sort of channel that toward these grander political objectives. So that's important to understand also when we so, think about what China's authoritarianism looks like. So David, let me let me ask you then, um, is there, and, and again, Matt's introduction to the, the pieces is extremely rich. Uh, and there's a lot that we could just be, you know, doing seminar-like discussions of this for for hours here i'm for for those who hopefully will read the pieces but are not political scientists and they're not political theorists um is there is there a way that you can encapsulate wang's thinking or the core of his thinking in in a few sentences is there a wang for dummies or a you know a <laughs> the essential wang uh that we need to understand because after that i'd like to then talk to you guys about his role in policymaking, which which Matt mentions in in introduction, but but uh, is there is there the 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 essential Wong? What, what is it? I don't know about that. Matt probably can give a better answer than I can. I, I translated those three pieces, mm-hmm. which is not that much, and then I read America Against America. Yeah, when I get to a that, very, it's a very different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a central vision that emerges from those four things that I read. In fact, I don't want to get us off track here, but from the point of view of someone who's been doing what I've been doing for the last decade, Wang Huning is in no way exceptional. He does mm-hmm. not stand out at all, either in terms of the quality of arguments or uh, anything else, really. Um, now, he might have got there before anybody, everybody else. He may be really prescient, or he may have been a, a, a vanguard. I have no idea. But nothing he says... I was unwell completely when I did the translations. I was expecting uh, insights and this, that, and the other. I mean, he's clearly a smart guy. He, but he was much of a muchness. That's what the Chinese do. And if you want to find a central theme, I think he, he's Samuel Huntington in Chinese. It's the clash of civilizations. I mean, Samuel Huntington in Chinese. Yeah, I think. I mean, the, the, his book "America Against America" is Ezra Vogel's Japan is number one. That's his. That's what he's writing right there. Can you can you the actually notion. can you guys talk a little bit? I wanted to to move to that, and because one of the things that's unique about Wong, I mean, first of all, his there's obviously going to be a Wong biography at some point in time, and it'll be like many of these, which will be a lot of speculation and supposition, precisely because he started off. Uh, as as Matt, you note in your introduction, and I think the Palladium piece was pretty good on this. He started off um, as, as you said, an academic. Um, he traveled to the United States. He was writing publicly. And then when he went into government, he essentially cut off all contact with, with outside uh, speakers, thinkers, groups. I mean, no one's he hasn't talked to foreigners in years, apparently. And so there's there's sort of the Wong outside and the Wong inside. Um, but he did go to America in the late 80s, and he wrote a book called America Against America. And so this is not a person who's just talking about Mao and talking about the party. He talked about us. And and what did he discover about us that he wrote up in the, the I think it's the early 90s? Published early 90s. He wrote published in the, in the early 90s, right. And he was here in the, the mid to late 80s. So what, what did he discover? And he traveled. He traveled around. He talked to a ton of people. Be fascinating. Did he meet Huntington, by the way? Do we know that? I don't know. Matt, do you know? I, I don't think so. That would be fascinating to find out. So can you tell us a little bit about Wang's view of America, at Go least ahead. at that time? Well, I take I, that? Yeah, sure. I, I'd be happy to lead off. Um, and, and you should definitely fill in, David. So the recent writing on Wang, the, the, the boomlet of Wang writing, I think, uh, and one, I, I do want to, I think, or I definitely do want to acknowledge the work of some of these um, younger, I suppose, uh, or newer voices who are writing on Chinese elite politics and and, and ideology and um, uh, you know other kind of deep issues uh, in 
ways that I think are really grounded in, in sources and um, are exposing a much wider audience to these ideas than academics might be able to accomplish on, on, on their own. So there's been a kind of burst of um, intellectual and intellectually engaged and, and focused writing in general. And I think the interest in Wong comes out of that. Uh, so what those writers um, have picked up on is the fact that in America versus America, Wong obviously has some very critical things to say about the United States that are almost prescient, uh, which is to say, you know, they accurately diagnose um, structural issues in American society that existed then and exist now uh, around um, race, around inequality, around um, the vapidness of consumer culture. Uh, you know, th these are things that really turn Wong off, right? And so people have picked up on that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing from his observations. On the other hand, when he wrote the book, there's a whole other side to it, which is about him finding America absolutely fascinating. He's, tr he's really trying to understand what American civilization is about. And he uh, is, I think, particularly interested in the energy of American society, in the free flow of information. You know, he, he mentions anecdotes like you could just walk into a local library and, and apply for a library card. You know, this kind of thing uh, would, would not have been as thinkable in China during the 80s, although it wasn't unthinkable. But it's just the fact that the United States is already so far along um, down this track. But then at the end. He gets to the point, uh, which I think people have found most compelling, which is that somehow Wong's, Wong's conclusion is that the American center can't hold because there's just too much energy, you know, uh, spilling out in, in all of these different um, directions. And there's no single homogenous identity to hold people together. Now, these are not the conclusions that everyone would draw from visiting the United States, but, but they're, they're the conclusions that Wong draws. And then what I think is left out of the discussion is that his, his model, and this is very much um, from its era also, is having, having concluded that the American model is not the right model for China, the model that he proposes much be, uh, that might be much closer to the right model for China is the model of Japan. Because Japan, which, you know, is almost like sacrilege in, in China to say today, but what Japan has is it has a fast-growing economy and it has cultural and political homogeneity in, in Wong's view. And so that's my right. read of what the book says, basically. Uh, you know, I, I think there are other pieces, but, but it's that one, it's, it's, it's what captivates him about America that's positive that gets left out. And two, it's, it's the second part of the conclusion, which is not the United States, but actually there are other models. And, and the most compelling one is probably that of Japan. Right. And we should note that, that of course, he's saying that at, before the Japanese bubble bursts, he's saying that's at right. a time when Japan is seemingly going to, to overtake uh, the U.S., which, of course, and, and that's when I started getting involved in Japan. So, you know, in retrospect, there, there were multiple reasons that we should have questioned that. Um, and we should also note that America Against America is, has not been translated into English, correct? You can find a machine language translation, which is pretty good. Actually. It's pretty good? Okay. Because it's, it seems I mean, mm -hmm. it's all right. Yeah, they messed you, up some things. Are you going to yeah. do it, David? No, I don't want it. It's a, it's a long book, and it's, it's kind of book. dated. But Matt's right. What, what's cool about the book, it's hard for us to remember this. This was a long time ago in China time. But when Wong went to the U.S. in 88, I think it was, no, he's born in 55. So he lived through the Cultural Revolution and all the nonsense that followed. And so his view of America before he got there was thoroughly negative, right? So there are chapters in the book where he's saying, guys, markets really work. Markets allocate resources. It's amazing. They, 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 the prices go up, prices go down. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a puppy finding a new food source again. And then this was a big part of the book, like Matt said. At the end, I think there was a whole flurry of books like this at mm -hmm. the end of the 1980s. Uh, David Shambaugh treats them in his book, uh, Beautiful Imperialist. Mm -hmm. So this was part of that batch. But it's a good one. I haven't read a lot of the others, but it was just travel literature and commentary on the rest of the world. And it's, it's, it's sort of hit or miss. He ends on a negative note. But it's pretty well divided, really, you know. 
Well, I mean, his message is that we can do that too. We can have markets, but we can avoid this other stuff. Well, it's, it's a, I mean, and I also appreciate that that you guys are are um, giving a, um, a a more even-handed critique. I think again, in the little Wong boomlet that we're we're seeing, he is sort of portrayed as the new Tocqueville in terms of his views of America. You know, and in fact, I was going to say that, um, you know, is this, should we put this in the pantheon of Tocqueville's democracy in America and, and uh, James Bryce's, you know, the American, uh, the, the, the American constitution, or I forget the, the title, but, you know, um, these are, these are really insightful foreign views of the country. And it sounds like you're saying, yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily, Earth shaking. I'm I'm more interested uh, a little bit before we get to the policy implications of the Huntington uh, analysis or, or not analysis, but the Huntington um, references that you've made. And and um, I don't know, Matt. Maybe you want to jump in here on on what what exactly is that? Uh, and again, you know, Huntington, of course, has gone through cycles in in American thought uh, of being out of favor and in favor, and of course, with a very hardcore of 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 supporters, but. Um, so what is it that when when you say in effect you have you have a line in one of the introductions that I I can find in a second um, and again if you're not a political theorist it's one of those where you, you sort of scratch your head but um, the uh, Huntington esque structural functionalism has become indistinguishable from the dominant ideology of the party itself and since I'm just a knuckle dragging historian you're really going to have to unpack that for me but maybe more broadly you know talk about Samuel Huntington's influence on on Wong, and then we can move to policy. It, it, it sounds much worse when it's when it's read than when it's written. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what what I was trying to say there um, was that Wong, via Huntington and others, is engaging deeply with modernization theory, mm-hmm. which is to say that his understanding of I think uh, politics and the economy and how these are linked and you know where society uh which is you know to say um people outside of the political center uh fits into this is that he like modernization theorists uh coming out of the cold war is deeply interested in questions of how to make china's economy strong while also keeping china's political system strong not losing Mm -hmm. uh you know the party state in the process of um economic rapid economic growth which i think he sort of understands on some some level means economic liberalization and so that idea that all you know all all questions about how the political system and the economy etc should should be organized as kind of um bending toward those goals, I think is extremely important for understanding who he is and how he thinks. And I also think it's important to understand that where he's getting these ideas in part is from sources uh, that were prescribing some of the same solutions to uh, developing economies during the, you know, like basically from from the Cold War onward or from, from the beginning of the Cold War onward. And so he... Um, is engaging with Huntington because I think, especially, you know, for China coming out of the cultural revolution, there's a, a, a real appeal to Western thought. Um, you know, it, it uh, legitimates ideas that one might've had already anyway, but, you know, that was kind of part of the intellectual milieu of the 1980s, but also uh, American social scientists like Samuel Huntington had thought long and, and hard about issues of political and economic um, development. And so, uh, you know, those ideas, I think, are seen by Wang as valid and insightful sort of in their own right, you know, not just as like Western uh, gloss to put on some kind of uh, beliefs that he already holds. So it, it, what what is fascinating then, though, is that he does not remain whether you know to david's point he really is as insightful a thinker as as people are currently claiming or not he does not remain a hothouse intellectual but in fact he he's sort of the 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 dream of of many american intellectuals right which is that you you suddenly now find yourself at the core of power and uh and not only just under xi jinping but under uh Two of his predecessors, uh, Jiang Zemin and, and Hu Jintao, and more significantly, Matt, as as you note, that he 
is is central in helping frame the um, intellectual and and ideological um, programs that each of them adopted during their their time in office. For Jiang Zemin, it was the three represents, and Hu Jintao, the new development concept. Uh, and maybe the apotheosis is under Xi Jinping, again, moving dramatically um, uh, away, let's say, from his earlier views of, of um, the Huntingtonian, um, well, maybe not not away from the Huntingtonian model, but certainly in, in the sense of representation of what America, the, the positive side of the American system. He, for Xi Jinping, it's, of course, what we all are talking about, the China dream, the great revival of the Chinese nation, and that's the reference in, in terms of David's website, uh, and then the Xi Jinping thought, which we're all still sort of wrapping our heads around. So how significant is Wang in terms of Chinese policy as, as a policy influencer, if, if not a policy maker? David, I don't know if that's something you want to chime in on or Matt, either one. I'll just say two or three things because Matt knows more than I do. Um, policy is huge. There's lots of intellectuals and lots of ideas. So the Venn diagram leaves you with all this stuff. And it's very hard. I would say it's almost impossible to establish cause and effect relationships between what somebody thought and wrote down as an intellectual and what a government did before or after. So I don't know. I really, mm -hmm. I have a hard time with that argument. It's natural to think China has done these things on the basis of such ideas. One who needs an idea guy, and he's in there somewhere. He's in the mix, right? So let's look at him. But who knows? I mean, I think of him more as kind of a link between the Central Committee or the, the, the Central Political Culture of China and the intellectual world, because it matters to the Central Committee. We, we from look out of the cold. The, the, the Cold War heritage, we tend to think of communists as thugs, right? Right. Unsurprisingly, they don't see themselves that way. <laughs> they see themselves in very different ways. Xi Jinping is, has a veneer of intellectualism, which may or may not be true. I don't know. If you read his, his collected works, most are speeches that he gives. They're just right. you know, dump speeches. But they almost always start with some intellectual reference especially abroad. He's very proud to talk about Shakespeare if mm -hmm. he's in England or about the Voltaire, if he's in France or whoever. So I think it's very hard to be a statesman in China and not imagine an intellectual. So the, 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 they would like to be part of the intellectual world. And the intellectual world would like to be part of the policy world. But how that actually works out in practice, I think Matt probably could give us answers that I can't. Well, Matt, is he is is Wang uh, David mentioned, and, and not to cause you know a, a a fracas between you two, you know, but David we said he's in, he's in he's <laughs> he's in the mix, um, but he's a little bit more than just in the mix, right? I mean, he he's on the standing committee. He's one of the seven most powerful people in China. Um, so whether or not he's a a unique thinker, he's a thinker again in the the style, you know, again without going to the to the trite comparison but you know everyone trots out henry kissinger right as the as the thinker who made his way to the to the the center of power is that is that a good way to understand wong or is david right he's just he's just sort of around that that whole swirling constellation yeah i i would have to at least punt for a minute on on the on the kissinger comparison although that's that's very intriguing <laughs> it's 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 quite uh you know there 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 may be some some truth to that i think that the big question around wang which in some ways was sparked by this recent wave of writing about him is whether he's some kind of puppeteer who has right. been you know, uh, behind the curtain like a rasputin um you know uh uh telling Jiang Zemin what to say, uh, you know, telling Hu Jintao what to say, and now telling Xi Jinping what to say. And so it's, it's, it's all Wang. Um, or is he, um, in essence, a kind of speechwriter uh, and somebody who can take the um, goals of general secretaries like Xi and, you know, sort of turn them into the language of party ideology so that uh, those 
those goals, um, you know, those those broad strategies, those objectives are uh, translated into something that is more like um, a kind of doctrine that can be applied broadly across the party as a whole, because obviously she has a lot of decisions that he has to make. Uh, this this isn't um, you know getting to the question of his educational level, which I know that that that, that some people have questioned. But you know he's 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 too busy to write everything down in a way that adheres to all of the party's own rules about internal uh, about internal communication. And so, in addition to his role on the Polar Bros Standing Committee, Wong is also head of the party secretariat, which means that he's responsible for the day to day affairs of the party, which again, just he's, he's more, my, my own take would be that he's more of a coordinator. You know, he's a flywheel, he's an interlocutor and his particular, um, genius, so to speak, comes from his ability to infallibly, uh, translate the goals of the very top leadership, um, you know, which could potentially include uh, not 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 just you know she, but those around him, including the military, which is a complete black box in in China's uh, political system still, but into you know something that can then be broadcast out to the rest of uh, the members of the party, uh, and then also to the rest of Chinese society, and then to a certain extent to international society. Well, in a also. way, you're you're. Uh, I don't want to. Stretch the analogy or too much, or 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 really get too far beyond. But in a way, you you it it reminds me of uh, Joseph Stalin's early role with the Bolsheviks, and that you know Lenin, of course, wrote everything and and wrote his stuff. But Stalin, number one, became the coordinator within the party. Right, he ran the the party departments for personnel and was able, of course, in that way to to place his own. Um, his his own loyal lists throughout uh, the system, but he did write, and and uh, of course he wrote more when he became the the primary, um, you know, the paramount leader. But in in a way, he he did take uh, some of Lenin's ideas and thoughts and popularize them. Um, is is there any danger of of Wang making a, a bid for? the top position after she steps down is, I mean, here's, if he's running the day-to-day relations, if he knows how the party's working and the skeletons in the closet and, and he's obviously outlasted or, or, or lasted through three, um, well, they used to be, you know, first among equals. And now you have she who's a first among firsts, but are we going to see Wong move up? Let me it's, answer first, then Matt, then Matt yeah, yeah, give yeah, a better yeah, answer. Yeah. Uh, Wong never ran a province or a city. He cannot possibly have all those factional folks that other people do. I would tend to think, and Matt can disagree completely, language is really important in China and the Limitless Party. If you watch leaders give their speeches, they never, ever, ever improvise. They mm-hmm. always read what's on the paper. And that's because if you take a flight of fancy and go somewhere else, you mess it up. Wang, to my mind, is there because he's really good at language. He's really good at what, what Chinese call tifa. Tifa means the, the, the way you present things, the, the, the language that describes policy or ideology. But I, I'm just guessing. I mean, if that's what intellectuals do. They are sensitive to language. And then the stuff we translated, I thought there was a great sensitive language. I, I saw that. But uh, Wong as a as a usurper, I don't know. Your turn, Matt. No, I, I think that's good. Um, a, an analogy uh, from China's own history might have been Hu Xiaomu, who was uh, Mao's um, secretary, basically. But in a sense, who was one of the people, and 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 there wasn't just one who made Mao a good Marxist-Leninist theorist, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, you know, so. Um, she also needs people around him like that. And arguably Wang is not the only one, but he is, he is the most important. And, you know, he's both a, um, a key organizational figure, but also his domain is the idea, the, the, the ideological domain, both within the party and um, within China as a whole, but that's not the only domain, right. That the party governs. So there are other key figures who, you know, are responsible for the political legal systems, the uh, various subsystems like state security, et cetera, who are uh, 
from a realist perspective, probably more important to um, ensuring the party's uh, political future than is Wong. The yeah, I had to ask because, you know, I'm in Washington and that's all we do is, you know, we, we try to crystal ball this stuff. So let me finish. I mean, I could I could keep talking uh, all day about this and actually try to get in deeper into uh, the, the the thought. And, and, and again, what I think is so important about this, this particular set of translations, but everything, David, that you're doing on the site is, um, you know, again, how far behind we are in really reading the Chinese in their own words to themselves, not what they say to us. So this is, uh, again, reading the Chinese dream site is is extraordinary. So let me wind up then with asking each of you a simple question, which is for Americans who want to understand China and and the challenge and the People's Republic and the party today, um, what should they read? Um, and and again, it's a problem of time. You can't read everything. And David, you're, you know, you're you're paid to to do this for a lifetime and teach and the like. But most folks will, if they're lucky, will read one or two things. What is it that they should read? What's going to be most helpful? And I understand that's spinning in the ocean, but you got to start somewhere. Uh, what should they read? If they're interested, they should send me an email. I'll send them four links. That's awesome. Maybe maybe Chin Hui, who's a fantastic intellectual who writes about what globalization means, saying that we completely misunderstand it and China is the problem of globalization. Mm-hmm. There's Zhang Shigong, who's a brilliant apologist for the regime that no one that listens to us will like, but he's trying to provide sort of a Marxism 2.0 or 3.0, an upgrade of Marxism that makes sense in a rich society. There's Xu Jilin, who's trying to figure out what cultural and civilization mean in China and the rest of the world. I'll stop with three, because that's enough. You know, David, in fact, it, well, um, what, tell us what your email is, and then if you send those to me, we'll actually try to put them on our site when we when we post this podcast so that people can go to the site and then see the links. But what your email for folks to reach out sure. to you is... This is a dangerous thing to do, but it's onb.david at gmail.com. Great. great. It's on the site somewhere, too. So. Yeah. Um, thank you for those. And, and Matt, um, uh, and, and you're, you know, you're a, a policy-focused guy. You're, you're, you know, you're advising and you're at Hoover. What, what are the things, the, the short list that we need to read? Sure. Um, well, one, if you really want to start with the basics, uh, I would say you have to start with Franz Schurman's ideology and organization in communist China, okay. which would really, I think, get in a kind of primary way at how ideology and organization, it's right there in the title, are intertwined. And also, you know, names a part of the system, uh, names all the different parts of the system in a way that I think are would be very helpful for you know intellectuals, policymakers, others uh, trying to get their heads around um, you know what a Leninist system is in the context of China, how it works, et cetera, et cetera. The book is obviously quite dated, but you know as as a kind of basic introduction, and it's it's a hard read, it's a hard slog, but um, you know at the same time that it's it it I think perhaps maybe signals some of the discipline that's required in order to really uh, get get one's head around these topics. Um, and then I think Ezra Vogel's book on Doug, Deng, Deng Xiaoping is you know, great maybe for understanding the reform era that Xi Jinping is coming out of, basically. And, and you could argue that the party's most recent historical uh, resolution basically marked the end of the reform era. But you know, that's, that's the backdrop against um, which we need to understand the present. I'm enough of a historian still that I believe uh, that all of that is quite important and also completely wonkish, but I will just throw it in there. Uh, Still a big fan when understanding issues of ideology and propaganda of uh, Robert Jarvis's The Logic of Images in International Relations Mm -hmm. for for the sole purpose being that it's a book that teaches us all of the different ways in which we shouldn't take statements at face value but how to still, you know, understand them from meaningful uh, perspectives, you know? So 
what what does all of this noise mean, right? How do we understand it? How do we begin to talk about what propaganda is? Because ultimately, when we talk about ideology, we're talking about propaganda. And I think that's going to be a huge debate in Washington and elsewhere going forward as we do. You know, I, I can see signs of it already. Uh, people are starting to go back to sources, are starting to take politics seriously when talking about China. And they're going to have to encounter all of this stuff again, as, as they did, you know, when, when the U.S. was competing with the Soviet Union. And they're going to have to decide how to interpret it and how to think about it. And there's going to be one group, and because this is already what's happening, that says, we, we really need to understand what these words say and what is meant. And there's going to be another group that says this is all, you know, sort of dross. This is propaganda that is empty. It doesn't have any real meaning. And, you know, what we really need to be uh, able to understand is something that lies behind it. I, I think, what David and I have both been trying to say, maybe in different ways, is that the truth is probably somewhere closer to the middle, where you have to be able to understand what these documents are saying, but you have to understand their internal logic and the system that they come out of, not just you know skim the surface and say, okay, you know that's 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 what they've said. That must be what they mean. Right. Well, that bell you heard is signaling the end of our interview. Um, I, that was brilliant, by the way. I don't know if you guys uh, planned it, but we had three recommendations um, for Chinese authors and Chinese thinkers from David and three recommendations of, of Western authors from, from Matt. And I'll get those from you. We'll put them on the site so people can go and, and uh, look for them. Um, again, the, the site, uh, David's site is reading the China dream, uh, dot com. Uh, an incredible collection of, of translations. Um, Matt, again, being part of that and, and, and now at Hoover. Um, this was just a, a wonderful conversation and I think really sort of scratching the surface of, of getting uh, smarter on China, which is something we, we desperately need to do and hopefully um, have you guys back to, to talk more as, as we move into an important year next year uh, with the next party Congress, uh, with not necessarily clarity on the post Xi Jinping era, but clarity on where the Xi Jinping era is going from here. So David Ownby of the University of Montreal and uh, Matt Johnson of the Hoover Institution, thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific Century. Thank you. That was great. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a fantastic conversation. So uh, I'm Misha Oslin. Uh, thanking you again for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Pacific Century. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.